Well, good morning. If you're in Kidmo, I'm going to let you guys head on back. What we may have to do is have everybody move in and move forward because uh, there's like a big empty spot right up here in the middle. I don't know if that is because you all are afraid of me or if you're afraid I'm going to spit on you or something. I'm not sure. I don't spit. Usually my spit doesn't go that far, but uh, Leslie does catch most of it, so um, you would be safe. But we are glad that you're here. And, uh, oh, <laughs> Richard's leaving. Um, we are glad that you're here. I know we've got several guests today, and we're just thrilled that you chose to be with us. Uh, we hope that you'll overlook our construction stuff going on. Uh, hopefully, we're going to finish that up. I don't know when. So every time I tell you when it's going to be done, uh, we find out we're nowhere close to that, that happening. Um, so we're just going to wait and see how that all works out. Uh, it is Memorial Day weekend. I understand we had a great crowd uh, last night at the car meet. So I don't know, were any of you there? Just a few, a handful? Is anybody awake? Okay, a few people are awake. All right. Um, and so they had a good night last night. Uh, we had the privilege of going over and being at uh, Patrick and Melanie's wedding yesterday. So they're now on their honeymoon. They got married last night and the rain held off. So we were thankful for that. Um, and uh, we are thankful for this Memorial Day weekend, not just to celebrate our three-day weekend, not just to celebrate that school's out, but to celebrate um, our nation and recognizing the many people who have given their lives so that we can have this privilege. Uh, it really is a privilege. If you are a, a student of world events at all, it is a privilege to be able to come and to drive ourselves to our place of worship, to get out of our cars, to walk in the door, uh, to sit here with the only fear being how long is the preacher going to talk, um, that being our only fear. That's a privilege because many do not have that privilege around the world. And as we're seeing, many Christians are losing their lives in their pursuit of worship of our Savior. Uh, I don't know how that feels. We've never been faced with that. And maybe one day we will, maybe we won't. Um, but their example and their testimony is something that not only should we remember those who have died for our nation, but we should remember those who are dying for their faith um, and remember them as well. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series today, and to be honest, I didn't really set out to do this series. Uh, it kind of it just hit me um, in my own personal just Bible study, and I just want to encourage you, if you, especially if you are a leader here, uh, if your Bible study is about achieving a goal, which means I, I have to be prepared for small group. I have to be prepared to teach kids. I have to be prepared to preach a sermon, um, things like that. If that is the extent of your time in God's Word, my guess is, is that your time in God's Word is becoming more and more empty if it's not already empty. Uh, the truth is that as a leader, um, as someone who's growing in their faith and is trying to help someone else grow in their faith, your own personal soul feeding of God's Word is crucial to everything you will do. It doesn't matter if you're checking in at the, at the desk because there will be days that you will think, I don't want to check in kids today. I just want to sleep in. And you will find that you can become empty doing some of those tasks. Whenever you're teaching kids and, the, the, and parents have given their kids a triple, you know, macchiato express or whatever with five shots of espresso uh, before they came in, and you're thinking, I should have been sick today. Uh, why did I come? You know, your own personal study and time in God's Word is your own time with God. And whenever you have those moments, 
I find that that's where God encourages me the most, where God speaks to me the most. And going through the story of David, David's always been uh, a, uh, one of my favorites. It just Over the last few months, it, it began to gel into all of these lessons that I felt like God was showing me that I want to now show you. So as we go through the story of David today... Um, if you've got version, you can follow that on your phones, your tablets, whatever you've got with you. If you've brought your Bible, we're going to spend a lot of time going through some Scripture because what I want to do today is lay the groundwork for what we're going to talk about over the rest of the summer. Now, you may be thinking, how are we going to talk about David and Goliath for the rest of the summer? Well, we're not. You know, how are we going to talk about David and Bathsheba for the rest of the summer? We're not. Each one of those play a part of David's life, but they are they are significant, yet just small portions of his life. If you study the life of David from the time that he's introduced, which we're going to talk about today, to the time that he dies, the breadth of his life and the lessons that he has to show us about our own lives is enormous. And no doubt, several of the weeks that we go through the story of David, you're you're not going to have any idea that David went through that or that David experienced that. And what I want us to take away is not just what happened to David, and we can learn lessons about what happened to him. But what's more important is how David responded to the things that are happening in his life. How he responds to what's going on is the real lesson. Because we know if you've been in church at all, if you know anything about David, you know he is a troubled dude. I mean, he has a lot of problems. But interestingly enough, he's continually held up as a man after God's own heart. Now, if you're like me, if you're only aware of, of the stories like David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba, that causes some kind of angst in you that says, how could this guy be a man after God's own heart? He had an affair with a married woman. He sends her husband out to be killed in battle. He does a lot of other terrible things in his life and makes some very poor decisions. And yet consistently, he is a man after God's own heart. So a few things that I want to take from that is what makes a person gain that title? What makes a person be said about them that they're after God's own heart, even when they have so many failures within their life? This video that we were just watching, um, let me just read that again to you. And I want you to hear from the heart of a man who who loves God. Psalms 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, for I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As we read through Psalm 51, what we find often through the life of David is in stark contrast to who I want to spend some time talking about today. Because David's story does not begin with him. David's story begins well before David ever enters the scene. Now, as we start in our story, you need to know some of the history of where the nation of Israel has come from in the last, last few years of their life. We studied a few weeks ago the story of Joseph. And Joseph was sold into slavery. He eventually becomes the head over all of Israel. And as he becomes the head over all of Israel, he begins to bring his family there in the midst of a famine. We find later that the nation of Israel begins to form in Egypt because they all trying to survive the famine come to Egypt to be rescued by Joseph and the plan that God had given him to provide for the long famine that they had. After Joseph passed away and after the nation of Israel were here in Egypt for a long time, as the leadership began to change, they began to oppress the Christians that were there. They weren't Christians at the time, but they began to oppress the Israelites there in Egypt. And so they began to cry out for a deliverer. Moses enters the picture and they leave Egypt under his direction. They wander for several years until they eventually are able to go into the promised land. Now, once they go into the promised land, something very interesting begins to happen with them. There is this battle within their hearts to follow or to not follow God. And what we find over and over, and especially as you read through the Old Testament and as you read especially through the book of Judges, as you begin to see that God is speaking through prophets and leading his people through prophets. And as long as they followed God, things went well and they prospered and they took over the lands that God had promised them. But when they turned away from God, things began to go not so well. It may be a story that not only do we read in the Old Testament, it could be a story you may see in your own life. I know I see that in my own life. Eventually, the people decided, you know what? Every time we follow God, things go well, but we don't always like following God. But if we had a king like all these other nations, then we wouldn't be dependent on God to deliver us anymore. We would have a king to rally us and to bring us together. We've already proven we can be great warriors. We can conquer these nations. Let's have a king. And God said, no, you don't need a king. And at the time, there was a prophet who was leading them by the name of Samuel. And Samuel said, you need to follow God. You need to follow his direction where he wants to take you. But they continued on. We need a king. We need a king. We need a king. And eventually, Samuel is led to appoint Saul as the first king of Israel. The reason we're starting with Saul is because Saul, like David, committed a lot of terrible sins in his life. But the end of, of of Saul's story is an ending where God rips the kingship from his hands because of his failings. And we have to ask ourselves, why would Saul lose the kingship because of his mistakes, but David not lose it because of his own? 
Those are some of the questions we're going to answer. Along the way, we're going to deal with the issues of calling. We're going to talk about character and integrity, how God works in your life, and why God may not be working in your life. We're going to look at the issues of redemption, of submission, forgiveness, and retribution. We're going to talk about judgment as well as mercy. The themes that we find throughout the story of David are really just rich with much of what the gospel is about. As we enter his story, I know some of you may be living lives that are not exactly what you thought they would be. Let me just ask you for just a quick hand with no details. How many of you right now are living the life you always thought you would be? Okay, Christina is, Deidre is. All right, we've got a, but nobody else is. That's depressing. That's depressing. Is anyone, did anyone think life was going to be better than sometimes it ended up being? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. Did anyone think it would be worse? Hey, you guys are doing good. If you thought it was going to be worse, and life worked out better than you thought it was going to be. That's great. So we enter the story of David. We enter the story of a boy. One of eight brothers, seven older brothers. I don't know how many of you in here. We don't have, the, the Murphys aren't here today, so we don't have the string of, of kids from older to younger. But there was a time when even in our own nation, we had families that had 10, 15, 20 kids in it. Today, if you have two, you're pulling your hair out, right? Maybe just one. He was one of eight brothers. As we follow the story of David, where we reach him right at this point of his life that we're going to talk about today, we reach him at a point where he has really very little responsibility. He's become skilled as a shepherd. He's become pretty adept at defending the flock, uh, but he's, he's the youngest. What we're going to find when we get to the story of David and Goliath is whenever he, he goes out and actually is exposed to the battlefield where Goliath is... His father had sent him out just to go see how his brothers were doing because they were doing the real work of the family. And David literally could not find them. In fact, he has to go around and ask people, have you seen my brothers? Have you seen my brothers? Have you seen where they went? Have you seen the flock? But an experienced shepherd who spent all his time out in the field would be able to follow the signs and know where they had gone. So we find a guy, a young guy, not real important. Everyone else tells him what to do. And he's just kind of living his life. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting. You know, he's having fun. But, you know, it's not something that is going to shake the the grounds or the pillars of the world. You may find yourself in that kind of a life right now yourself. There are times that we think our lives are going to be more than they are. And for whatever reason, we feel stuck. We feel like things are just kind of going from day after day. And we're just going to work, and then we're coming home. And then we're going back to work, and then we're coming home. And we may even at times pray, God, this is not what I thought life was going to be like. I thought it would be better. I hoped for more. I thought we would go farther. And yet we are still here in this place where we're living and dealing with these daily issues. And it just feels like we're never going to break out of these daily issues. This is the place where we find David. Just a happy-go-lucky guy, doesn't have a lot of responsibility. The last thing in his mind is that he's ever going to be king. But what we're going to see in the contrast between David and Saul is that the beginning of David's life and the beginning of his kingship begins in the heat of battle while simultaneously he is just in a boring field. That may be where you are. 
Life may not have started the way you thought. It may not be ending the way you thought. But what we're going to find is that God continues to work. And there are some things we are responsible for, for him to work most. 1 Samuel 15 is where we're going to pick up. And we're going to go through 15 and 16. So I'm going to read some big sections here. I've cut out a little bit, but I want you to hear all of this. 1 Samuel 15 is where we hear about Saul losing his kingship, the first king of Israel. And I want you to listen to what happens because what Saul falls prey to is what so many of us fall prey to in our own lives today. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill them, kill them both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now what has happened here is there has been a confrontation between Amalek and Agag and the nation of Israel. And God has judging the world before Christ comes through the ways that the nation of Israel expanded in the known world at that time. God was with the nation of Israel and he was showing his judgment throughout the world for all mankind through his people. That's why we call them God's chosen people. Whenever Jesus came, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, the curtain was ripped in the temple, and they were no longer just God's chosen people. And then all who would believe in Christ became God's chosen people. And God continues to work in our lives and continues to work in the world to bring judgment and reconciliation to himself. But in this time, it all happened through military action as God judged these other nations and showed his power in the world by overwhelming them. Now, he's given Saul an instruction, and Saul's been a pretty effective king. He's been an effective soldier. He's a big guy. People come up to him. He's intimidating. He, he is an effective king. And what's interesting about this time in Saul's life, usually a king does not lose his kingship when he has just won. Now, if they lose, and we're going to see places in David's life where David actually lost battles. And there are times that David wasn't even there when he should have been there for a battle. And he just about lost all of his men that were following him. But when we look at Saul, we look at a man who in this moment in his life, he has won. He has accomplished the goal. He has beaten back these people that have accosted the nation of Israel. Except God had told him, I am bringing judgment on these people and I want you to wipe everything out. Good and bad that you see, everything has to go. Now follow what I'm telling you. Now, my guess is that none of you are going to get this instruction in your life. And if you do feel that God tells you to go wipe out of people, please come and see me first. We've got some nice men in some nice clean white jackets to come meet with you. 
This is not how God continues to work. But in this moment, this is how God worked. And yet Saul, for whatever reason, decided, why should we wipe out everything? Let's just keep the good stuff for us, and we'll wipe out all the stuff we don't want. And what you're about to see is what you and I are so guilty of many times in our lives. He is going to try to figure out a way to say, even though I did not follow your commandments, I'm not guilty. What we see in the story of Saul and what we see in God's immediate response to this action was that God rejects those who ignore him. God rejects those who ignore him. Now, throughout this story and throughout the rest of the stories of David, I'm going to challenge one of the prevailing theological arguments that people are embracing today, which I think is incomplete at best and heresy at worst. And that is that God is so gracious and merciful that he is not concerned with your obedience. Because we see that over and over and over again being heralded in books, heralded in songs, heralded from pulpits, that God doesn't care how you act. Jesus died on the cross, and because you're a sinner, he's just going to forgive you, and he's going to give you grace no matter what you do. Now, the reason that this is a problem is because this is a half-truth, and half-truths are some of the worst problems to deal with. It is true he is gracious. It is true he is merciful. It is true you and I are sinners and we are never going to live a life completely apart from sin. It is true that God accepts us even when we fail. However, when we say we are followers of Jesus and we ignore him, he responds today as he did then and he rejects us. One of the parables that you might be familiar with is the parable of the lukewarm water. God wants us to choose, will we be Hot on fire for him, or will we be cold? But if we're trying to be somewhere in the middle and ride the fence, and we're going to be obedient on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday is a whole different story. He says, I will spit you from my mouth. He rejects those that ignore him. Now, that should cause you some fear, as it causes me some fear. And yet we do return to the reality that we see in David's life that we're going to find, and just to spill the beans of one of the truths we're going to find, is that God is not so much concerned that you never sin as much as he is concerned with how you respond when you do. How do you respond when you sin? And this is what we're going to see in Paul's life, or Saul, I keep saying Paul, Saul's life moving forward. 1 Samuel fifteen twelve says, and then Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. He's had this conversation with God. He, he gets up early to meet with Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for who? Remember that. I want you to remember this. He set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. He's just going about his business. Look what I've done. I've won. And then I, I profited with all of these great livestock, and I've taken the riches, and I've taken the valuable things from them, and now they're mine. Look what I have done. And he heralds himself as the hero. And what we're going to find in his life, and what I, I know we'll find in our own lives, is that God cannot work in a heart that is focused on itself. 
As a follower of Jesus, I want so desperately for God to be at work in my life. And I think that you're probably in agreement with me on that. Not just my life, your life. We want so desperately to see God do something supernatural. We so desperately want to see God show up and change the world. We so desperately want him to come and just demonstrate his power. We so desperately want to see him do something. And we so desperately don't want to be stuck in a field keeping sheep, wondering, is there something more God wants from me? But God cannot work in a heart that is focused on itself. And what happens to Saul is that his heart turns on himself. Now, here's what's interesting, is what you're about to read, why he does this, which is not what you think. As he begins to hold all this value in himself, he's doing that for a particular reason, and we're going to see that in verse 17. In 1 Samuel 15, going back to verse 13, it says, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done it. I did what he told me to do. Now, Saul does not yet know what God and Samuel have been talking about behind the scenes. But what he is doing is already trying to cover his tracks that he knows he's been disobedient. This is Samuel's response. In verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Which, quite honestly, if you don't read some of this stuff and laugh, you should. Can you imagine? I, I imagine this is a conversation I've had with my kids at time, at times. Um, have you have you put away the things that I told you? Yes. And there it sits. You know. I can just imagine as Samuel walks up, Saul saying, "I've done it. I've done it. I've followed the commands of the Lord." And then this sheep. That's a terrible sheep sound, but you can hear it. You can hear it in your own head. I can just imagine Saul just, oh, did he hear that? And Samuel calls him out and he says, well, what is this that I hear that shouldn't be here? What is this that you have now in your possession that was supposed to have been destroyed? You are already found guilty. Verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. I love it. Who? They. They did it. They did it. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep. The people did, not him. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord our God. And the rest we have developed, devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord told me this night. And he said to him, speak. He's had enough. Samuel was not one. A prophet, as you read through the prophets, were not one to mix words or to make nice. There's a reason that a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament were killed. And it's because they didn't do well in small talk. They got right to the heart of the matter. Stop! Verse 17. This is what Samuel says. And I want you to hear this because I know this is something that many people struggle with. When we look at why did Saul create a monument to himself, we think he was just an arrogant jerk. He just thought so much of himself. The reality is you work with people like that. You go to school with people like that. You come to church with people like that, right? There are people like that all around us. And the thing that we do when we see someone who loves themselves is we make great assumptions about what's going on in their heart. And you could do that easily about Saul, a wealthy king. He's doing great. He's a great warrior. He's won a great battle. Of course he's proud of himself. But look what what Samuel says. Samuel goes right to the heart of what's happening within Saul. 
Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes. Though you are little in your own eyes. Now remember, remember when David does fight Goliath and Saul says, here's my armor, put it on. And David's like, I can't move, this stuff's so big. Because Saul was a big guy. He's king, he's the first king. And he's a successful king. And yet in Saul, he was little in his own eyes. One of the, one of the great tragedies of our day today the number of people that are little in their own eyes they don't feel valuable they don't feel like they've ever accomplished anything they don't feel like they matter in this world they don't feel like god can use them they don't feel like their contributions matter they don't feel like they're ever going to go anywhere and they don't feel like anyone cares about them at all And my guess is that a number of us have struggled with being little in our own eyes. It's not humility. Humility is not that you're little in your own eyes. Humility is that you recognize the value of others above yourself. Being literal in your own eyes does not recognize the value of others. It just assumes you have no value. And it drives us to some terrible life decisions and to some terrible life actions. For Saul, he needed a monument to tell himself he was worth something. For Saul, he needed wealth to prove that he was a good king. For Saul, he needed some kind of outside validation that says, I am worthy. And what he did in his search for value is he ignored the one of ultimate value. He ignored God and he put all of his focus on himself, which is often what happens when you are little in your own eyes. This is the downfall of Saul. This is what caused him to lose his kingship. And one of the things that you're going to struggle with in life, you're going to struggle with finding what is my value in this world? Why do I exist? Is it in your career? My career is what gives me value? Is it in the car that you drive? I know so many guys especially that their their entire ego is built up into their possessions. And that's great as long as you have the money to buy those possessions. But if things ever go dry, then you lose everything that you felt gave you value. Is it your children? Do we find our value just in our children? Certainly we find value in parenting children. But do we find all of our value there? One of our favorite shows is The Goldbergs. We've talked about The Goldbergs. Not a very spiritual show at all, but we uh, find that some of them are a little more applicable to our lives than we would like to admit. And we joke about Beverly. We love Beverly, the helicopter mom, who's just in one episode, says, I just don't understand why you won't let me just make all of your, your lives about me or something like that. I can't remember. Deidre could name the quote. She just wanted... To, Everything in her life to be about her kids. And it's funny, the episodes on and on and on are just about the kids saying, give me space. 
Is it our kids that we find our greatest value in? Is that how we feel valuable? What happens when the kids embarrass you out in public? It happens. Let me tell you. All of a sudden, do you lose your value? What if your kids don't perform the way that you thought they would? I've already told mine, I have low expectations. Get good jobs and build a wing on your house for me because I'm coming to live with you. Those are all my expectations. They're not very high. Emma's already banned me from her house. Jake, he'll take me in, I think. Jonathan would at one point, but now he's getting older. He's getting ready to be a teenager. That'll probably change. Where do you find your value? For Saul, he was little in his own eyes. And I will tell you, if you're a parent, if you're a leader, if you're, if you're a, a not, how you see yourself will determine many ways how you live the rest of your life. For Paul, he was trying to prop everything up he could, every external way to prove that he was something. This is what Samuel continues to go on and say, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and the fight against them until they are all consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Which is never a good response when he's just said, No, you haven't. I've done it. Which tells us something else about Saul we'll get to in a minute. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I did all of this for God. Can we just ignore the monument to myself over there? But everything else was for God. I promise. And in this we find in Saul what many of us struggle with. And that is that we will pretend to be something we're not. Believing somehow that God, we have fooled God. And in the end there is no fooling God. He sees. Now for some of us that, that's, that's frightening. Because I've pretended to be a whole lot more than I am, and I'm scared of what God really thinks. But for others, that should be a ray of hope. Because you're wondering why no one sees in you the things you want them to see. And I want you to know, even if they don't, God does. When you make that decision in the dark and no one recognizes that you took a stand for character and integrity, no one else may have seen it, but God saw it. When you gave something to someone who was suffering and no one else would talk to them and you think no one would notice, God notices. When you take time out of your day to talk to someone who's hurting and give them some attention to help them through their pain, maybe no one else notices, but God notices that. When you sit down and you spend time in God's Word and you're just hoping that somebody's noticing and will pat you on the back, that's a good thing you're doing. God notices those things. So this reality that God sees what's really happening through beyond what we pretend to be is twofold. It can be frightening for those that have pushed him away and said, I am everything. Let me prove to you how good I am. 
It can be a very frightening prospect that God sees through that. But it can give hope to the one who is wondering, I'm quietly following Jesus and no one notices. But he does. He does notice. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. And it is in this moment that Saul's heart sunk. What we don't see anywhere in this story is that Saul ever takes responsibility and we never see him be repentant about it. He just doubles down. It was them. And not only that, we only took this stuff to sacrifice to God. Except God sees his heart. God knows what's going on within him. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And the reason that Samuel said this, by the way, is when the, when the prophet walks in with the king, it is a symbol of God's presence with the king. And so Samuel refused to walk with him because he did not want the nation to, to believe that God was still with Saul. And so he says, I will not be with you. I am the presence of God in this nation at this moment, and the presence of God is not with you. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And in this moment, even though Saul retains the the role of king for quite a while, At this point, God removes his presence and removes his help from him. Now, he's going to, for quite a while, he is going to continue to command the armies. He's going to continue to live as the king of Israel. And he is going to continue to go to battle. Even the story of David and Goliath happens after this. This is is the beginning or introduction to David. Now, what's interesting and what's going to happen is that in the very next chapter is where David comes into the story. But what I want you to remember about Saul before we move on was that it was his insatiable pursuit of self-importance that destroyed his heart. And you live in a culture that says the greatest pursuit is self-importance. You are important. You are better than the other people around you. You are better than the people that you work with. You are better than the people you go to school with. You're better than the people you live around. You're better. And while few of us would admit it, many of us struggle with actions that are pushed in that direction. I I just want to feel like I matter. And what God wants us to see, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, is not that we are better than anyone else. He just wants us to see that He loves us and He wants us to love Him. It is not about being important. 
we go on to see this. I've got, I've got five quick lessons, and I promise they're going to be quick. But five quick lessons from just these next few verses that I want you to see because this sets us up for the rest of the series. 1 Samuel 16, this is when David is introduced. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? So Samuel's upset about this. He puts Saul in place. He's upset. Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you. And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, what we see as just a footnote of this part of Saul's life is that even though Saul cried out for forgiveness, what we see in his actions is that he was again doubling down. He tried to hold Samuel there so he couldn't leave. And then Samuel knew that he was not going to allow, Saul was not going to allow Samuel to anoint another king. He would kill him first. So even though we often give prayers of repentance. If our heart is not in it, then those prayers don't matter. Now, I understand this is a fine, difficult, fuzzy line because it is often in repentance that we are broken and we don't feel confident. And so I'm not suggesting that you have to feel confident in your repentance. What I'm suggesting is you have to feel repentant. And when you are repentant, it changes the way you act. Saul's actions never changed. He gave the words that he thought might assuage God and let him keep his, keep his kingship, but his actions never changed. And so what we see at the story of David is we're going to find that even though he fails, as we read in Psalm 51, he often returns to God in that moment. He is a repentant king. He is not a perfect one. The first lesson that I want you to take from this is that God's plan is the only plan that matters. His plan is the only plan that matters. This is why your time with God is so crucial. This is why following Him is so crucial. This is why denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and walking after Him is crucial, is because that is what aligns us with His plan. And we have to come to a place where we say God's plan is better than my plan. Not an easy place to come to. When we are finally to the place to say God's plan is better than my plan, then we can allow him to lead us. But as long as we're stuck with our own plans, then we're stuck. Have you ever had a good plan that failed? Has anyone ever experienced that? We had a good plan yesterday. We were going to a wedding. I was doing the wedding and we took Emma, and we thought Malia will love this. Those of you who don't Malia, she's our little three-year-old that's running around, probably creating havoc for whoever is in there with her right now. We're going to take her. She loves girly stuff. She loves seeing people dressed up. She loves to dress up herself. We're going to take Malia. It's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to go to this outdoor wedding, and, and it's just going to be fantastic. We're going to be this wonderful family together at this wedding. Didn't happen. 
It was a good plan. It was good to take her, we thought. What we did not anticipate, that she was tired and she missed her nap. And for whatever reason, she thought it would be fun to do the opposite of everything we told her to do. That was not in the plan. But that's what happened. And so ultimately, sometimes our plan, no matter how good they are, they just don't work out the way we think they are. However, when God has a plan, they always work out the way He wants them to work out. It's amazing. Sometimes our plans, when they are, we think they are good plans, sometimes they fail miserably. But here's what's interesting. Sometimes the terrible plans go beautifully, don't they? That's like the story of journey, by the way. It's the stuff we plan so crucially and critically that sometimes don't go so well. And the things that we think, oh, this isn't going to work, and they are fantastic. It's amazing how that works. God's plan is the only plan that matters. Pick back up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab, which is one of the eldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's a, probably one of the best verses about the life of David that you'll find. God is looking through your appearance. He's looking through your status. He's looking through where you are on the job ladder at work. He looks beyond what all the, your peers at school or at work say about you. And he looks at what's happening deep within your heart. That is what God is concerned about. The rest that we are concerned about really doesn't matter to him. When it comes right down to it, the thing that matters is what's going on inside of us. And even though in this world you can spend a lot of time taking care about all these externals, I want a good job, I want a big house, I want a nice car, I want to retire comfortably, I want everything to go well, I want people to look up to me and think, wow, I want to be him. We can do all that in this world, but this world is just such a small piece of existence. Because the rest of the world that you and I are going to experience once we die or once Jesus returns for all of the rest of eternity is not concerned with anything we've surrounded ourselves with. It is only about our hearts. And some of us are feeding our egos and some of us are feeding our bank accounts and we are feeding how we look and our reputation in the eyes of others. But we are starving our hearts. You know what it feels like when your heart is starving. Everyone thinks things are going well for you, but you know inside you're just withering. You believe this, everything is great, but deep inside I, I, I just feel decay. And you're, you're hitting all your marks at work. I mean, you're everything you're supposed to do, you're right on and you're on track and... And yet you can't remember the last time that you felt God's presence in your life. See, true wholeness in life comes from what's going on in our hearts. Not all this exterior stuff that the rest of the world is focused on. And when we buy into that, it leads us to starve ourselves from the activities that feed our hearts so that we'll feed our egos and our hearts will grow cold. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The new king is anointed. Here, here are the other four lessons or five lessons that I want to share with you, and I want to go through these kind of quickly. If you have you version, you can take these with you. Um, if you write quick, you can write really quickly here. Second lesson I want you to know is that God will determine your calling by your character. I don't know if you're concerned with your calling. You know, preachers, we're all about calling. It's a big deal for preachers. And one of the mistakes that was made was the belief that calling only entails ministry staff or missionaries. But instead, God has a calling for you in your life. But your calling to go to that place in which God has told you to go, to be the person that God has told you to be and to fill a, ro- a role that no one else can fill but you and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to do this is not determined by how attractive you are or how successful you are. It is determined by what's going on in your heart. It's determined by your character. Saul was capable, but he did not have character. David was not yet capable, but he had character. And so his calling is often dependent on what that character is. When I talk about character, what I mean by that is your commitment to follow Jesus. That is what character is. So when we choose to follow him, even when it's not popular, even when no one's watching, and even when we're not certain we'll ever get rewarded for it, it's following Jesus. You may be thinking of character as being wrapped up in morality. Well, that can be, but much of morality is wrapped up in following Jesus. And so character is the ability to follow and the commitment to follow Jesus. It's that dying to yourself and following him. Third lesson, character is the state of your heart, not your good intentions or who you pretend to be. This is a hard lesson to learn. It's a state of your heart. You either have it or you don't. You, anyone can gain it and anyone can lose it. But you can't kind of have it. You either have it or you don't have it. It's the state of your heart. It's not what we say we're going to do. I'm going to do this. I, I'm going to do it. So, you know, I, I've got character because I'm going to do it. How many of you have people that report to you When someone who reports to you at work and they come up and say, you know what, I know I was supposed to do it, but I'm going to do it. How do you respond? Or if you don't have people that report to you and you report to somebody else and you say that, I haven't done it yet, but I'm gonna, how do they respond? 
generally it's not a positive response. Good intentions make us feel good, but that's the only people that it makes feel good. But the other is one that continues to grow, and it's that who we pretend to be. You know, sometimes people come, and I remember when we first started Journey, and we had, a, we had some people come, and, and people were helping load and unload stuff, and, and gosh, we'd, they would take smoke breaks um, and load in the truck, and people would be like, you know, your volunteers are smoking? I know, isn't it great? <laughs> you know, that's kind of our response. Isn't that great? And uh, that was not the response that they anticipated. You know, there's many times that we pretend to be, and many of you may have come up in a, a, a religious system that didn't care what was really going on in you, but they wanted you to pretend to be clean and healthy and nothing's wrong, but you knew that's not who you were. Character is the state of your heart, not your good intentions or who you pretend to be. This is what God sees. He looks beyond all the things that we pretend to be. I know when early on when I was in college, I had no intention of going into ministry. Ministry didn't pay well, and I intended to get a job that paid well. I mean, I was going to do all kinds of things. I had seen Top Gun. I was going to be a fighter pilot at some time. Uh, I might be a fireman at one time. I still think about being a fireman. Deidre sometimes asks me when I'm going to stop wanting to be those things. I don't know when that will be. Uh, but ultimately what I wanted to do is I wanted to be super successful. I wanted to grow up in a business environment. I wanted to move to New York. I wanted to live in the penthouse. I wanted people to pick me up in a car that I owned that I never drove. I wanted to be something and somebody. And the truth is, many times, I have the exact same sin as Saul, feeling little in my own eyes. And so I look for things to make me feel big. And so I was going to do that with a big income and a big life, and people were going to want to be me. And I never saw it that way. That's not how I saw it. It wasn't until I got older and God got a hold of me for a while that I began to understand some of the hidden intentions of my own heart to realize that some of my own insecurities led me to do some things that made me feel better about myself that really weren't all that good and really weren't all that healthy. And so whenever God began to call me to ministry, I began to feel that this was where I should spend my life. I began to, to seek more wholeness than I did significance, I guess. And in that wholeness, being more with God and following in ministry made me be, be more whole than I was without it. And so I began to pursue it. But I believed because I still struggled with the desire to be big and bad and bold and everyone want to be me, that I'm just going to go into ministry and then, you know... You know, Rick Warren's doing a good job, but he's not great. And Andy Stanley's doing a good job, but he's going to have to retire at some point. And all these other guys at the time that were just at the top of the list, and I just thought, God's leading me away. I mean, I am going to be Warren Buffett's successor, and he's leading me into ministry. Therefore, it's going to be big and bad and bold, and it makes me feel better about myself. And through the years, I began to to learn that my heart and my intentions and some of the things that I pretended to be did not match what I really was inside. And when you reach that point in your own life, things can get kind of dim. One of the things that I found 
is that what God wants to do is to remold our hearts into something better. Change us and to root out these insecurities. Insecurity is a terrible thing. And the reason that so many of us are insecure is because we don't know where to go get our security from. We look at the world and we think it comes from fame and it comes from money and it comes from confidence. But that is not what Scripture said. Our security comes from our relationship with Christ. End of story. And when we begin to look at the world through eternal eyes, it changes the way we see it. If Saul had said, yeah, I can have all of these sheep and all of these oxen, if he had even had a glimpse of what the kingdom of Israel was going to become, he would have said, I don't need any of that stuff. God's got this enormous plan for us. But he only saw with his eyes for that moment to assuage that desire to feel significant. And he lost his character. See, subtle threads of pride will derail your life, and we all struggle with them. That's why when you see someone who's truly humble, that's why they stand out. Because they're so unique. And you just look at them and go, I just want to be like you. You just seem so healthy. You don't seem like you have questions. You don't seem like you doubt yourself. You don't seem like you feel bad about yourself. You just, I want to be like you. If you know somebody like that, the reason is, is because they demonstrate humility and they demonstrate a security beyond what the world is trying to convince you that you need to find it. Subtle threads of pride and the desire for personal glory will derail your life. All right, that's lesson number three. Character is the state of your heart, not your good intentions or who you pretend to be. Lesson four, character is displayed when you resist the temptation to disobey God. We see your character whenever you have that temptation. If you're struggling with addiction, every time you do not fall to addiction, you are demonstrating character. If you struggle with looking at stuff on a screen that you're not supposed to look at, every time you turn your head away from that and you do not follow into that behavior, that your character is displayed. Every time somebody says you need to take a shortcut at work, even though you're not allowed to take that shortcut, it'll help you in the end. Every time you do not take the shortcut, and maybe you even get chewed out because you missed a deadline, you display your character. However, lesson number five, character is determined by what you do when you fall, not by your lack of falling. We're going to, I'm not going to spend time on this one because we're going to spend lots of time on this one later. Character is determined by what you do when you fall. You will fall. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You will fall. What Saul did was Saul fought back and he tried to convince God, I'm the man you need. That's not how David responded as we read Psalm 51. He rushed back to God. And then lesson number six, it will be through your humility and obedience that God does his greatest work in you. Again, this could be a wonderful thing or a terrible thing. If you're already struggling to feel significant, it should bring you great hope that it is in your humility and obedience that God is going to do his greatest work. But if you're trying your hardest to look like the guy or the girl that's got everything together, you don't need anybody, you don't need anything, everyone should be like you. 
That should cause some fear that God does his greatest work in mindsets that are opposite of that. He'll do his greatest work in those who obey and are humble before him. And as much as David sins, and his sins are huge, huge. I mean, he would have life in prison sentences for some of the stuff he did. And yet God looks on the heart and he forgives a penitent sinner. So as we go through the story of David over these next few weeks, we're going to go through quite a bit of Scripture. We're not going to go through quite as much as we did today. But we're going to go through quite a bit of Scripture over the next few weeks. I hope you'll join us through the summer. I know you'll be traveling some. some of, you know, we've got some traveling this weekend. and uh, Just come when you can. If you miss a week, it's all right. You'll be able to pick back up the next week. Um, I hope that you'll follow with us through this series and you'll bring some folks with you because some of the lessons that we can pull out of David's life are for people that don't feel like their life is all together. And if you know anybody like that, I hope that you'll bring them with you. I'm going to pray with you. We're going to sing one more song and we're going to go. I do want to wish you a happy Memorial Day. I'm glad you came and you you were with us today. Um, Come back and, and be with us again next week. Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for the story of David for his life of a man who had some of the greatest highs of any person who would ever walk the planet. And most of us really cannot relate to that. But I thank you that you have preserved in your word to show us all of his failings because many of us can relate to those. I pray that you would give us wisdom to see our hearts as you see them. I pray that we would, you would remove the blinders, you would remove those cloudy lenses that we have tried to convince ourselves that we're better than we really are, and instead we will just be whole and open before you, receiving your grace and receiving your mercy, your Holy Spirit working your greatest works in us, because it is when we are the weakest that we can be made strong by you. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to be people of character. When we go to school, when we go to work, when we're at home, when we're with friends and we're with people we don't like, help us to be a people of character that are constantly committed to obeying your word. I thank you that we have your word that teaches us how to live our everyday lives, how to, how to deal with so many situations in life, and I thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand and give us discernment for the rest. I pray that we would be a people that demonstrates the gospel, not a gospel for people who are perfect, but a gospel for people who are broken and are repentant before you. Father, not only use us, but break us so that we can be used by you. I thank you for your son who's given us life. I thank you for the promise of eternity that we get to spend with you forever. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the world through those lenses. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.